Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. It's early in the season and wildfires have already claimed one life. And the dozen or so large fires have destroyed hundreds of structures and charred thousands of acres of timberland. Every year, fires threaten native land and communities. Coming up, we'll get a look at what the coming fire season portends and how native wildfire experts are working to keep up with the increasing number and severity of dangerous fires. We're back right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Art Hughes, in for Antonio Gonzalez. The U.S. Department of Interior released the government's first-ever attempt to quantify atrocities committed at federal boarding schools for more than a century and a half. Completed largely by indigenous staff members, the document released Wednesday acknowledges the boarding school's role in carrying out the official U.S. policies of dispossessing Native people of their land and driving out Native languages, cultures, and spirituality, primarily by forced assimilation of Native children. Interior Secretary Deb Holland, a member of Laguna Pueblo, ordered the report last July after revelations of unmarked graves, presumably of students, on the grounds of former residential schools in Canada. Holland says the report is the start of a path toward reconciliation. I come from ancestors who endured the horrors of the Indian boarding school assimilation policies carried out by the same department that I now lead. This department was responsible for operating what we now know to be 408 federal boarding schools across 37 states, or then territories, including 21 schools in Alaska and seven schools in Hawaii. Now we are uniquely positioned to assist in the effort to recover the dark history of these institutions that have haunted our families for too long. Holland became emotional as she described the trajectory of her own life. Her grandparents were sent to boarding schools when they were eight years old, and now she is in a position to create what she hopes will be a foundational document for future healing. The fact that I am standing here today as the first Indigenous Cabinet Secretary is testament to the strength and determination of Native people. I am here because my ancestors persevered. I stand on the shoulders of my grandmother and my mother and the work we will do with the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative will have a transformational impact on the generations who follow. The report is overseen by Deputy Assistant Secretary Brian Newland, who also fought back tears as he recounted the lost cultures, languages, and relatives, a trauma, he says, with echoes that continue to reverberate. This has left lasting scars for all indigenous people. There's not a single American Indian Alaska Native or Native Hawaiian in this country whose life hasn't been affected by these schools. We haven't begun to explain the scope of this policy era until now. Newland says the pandemic hindered the department's ability to obtain documents needed for the report. He also says the inability of Congress to agree on anything more than a continuing budget resolution for much of the year limited the funds available. He recommends additional appropriation for research in the coming fiscal year. Looking ahead, Interior officials say the report is the launch pad for renewed efforts aimed at, among other things, language and cultural revitalization. The first steps of many, they say, toward repairing an era of dehumanizing transgression. 
At the press conference, Deb Parker, the chief executive officer of the National Boarding School Healing Coalition, said the report reaffirms the stories all Native people grow up with. Our children had names. Our children had families. Our children had their own languages. Our children had their own regalia, prayers, and religion before Indian boarding schools violently took them away. Secretary Holland says she will now embark on a year-long listening tour of the country to, in her words, elevate survivors and give them opportunities to share the stories and build a permanent oral history. She says it is her responsibility and legacy as a Pueblo woman to do so. With National Native News, I'm Art Hughes. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There are at least a dozen large forest fires actively burning in the United States right now. That's according to the National Interagency Fire Center. Forest fires in New Mexico have already destroyed hundreds of structures and forced evacuations of some communities. Native firefighters and forestry managers are among those tasked with not only containing wildfires when they start, but also finding proactive ways to keep them from sparking in the first place. In this hour, and as we enter the heat of fire season, we'll take an up-place look at what the forecast is for the next few months, what the danger spots are, and what those on the front lines of active fires are facing. You can join our conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. On our show today, we have fire management specialists representing a wide range of Native communities and geographic regions. First up is Bodie Shaw. He's speaking with us from Portland, Oregon, where he's the Deputy Regional Director for the Northwest Region of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. He's a member of the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs. Bodie, welcome back to Native America Calling. Uh, thank you, Sean. Looking forward to the conversation. I am too, and it appears fire season 2022 is shaping up to be a doozy. Is it worse than years past, Bodie? Uh, great, great question, Sean. Uh, and unfortunately, because of the, the impact, intensity, and the cadence of previous fire seasons, this is really something that is, doesn't come to us unexpectedly. So, yeah, we're a little quicker out of the box if you look at, well, nationally, as you mentioned, coming into the show. You know, we're pushing half a million acres already burned, nearly 500 homes there in the southwest region. Uh, so it is, it off, is off to a quick start, uh, April, May is a little quicker, but unfortunately, once again, the seasons are starting earlier, lasting longer. So we and our firefighting crews are starting to expect this, unfortunately. 
Now, you mentioned April, May is a little bit earlier than usual to see this many fires. What's generally the peak time during the season when wildfires are at their worst? Yeah, another great question. More than likely, June, July, August tend to be our peak fire season. So you have, you know, your fires in the southwest now that we migrate up into the eastern, western Great Basin, into the Pacific Northwest, uh, into the July, uh, uh, August time frame. So we, our crews tend to move that way. We share our resources uh, nationally along those same lines. As an example, as you mentioned, I'm here in the Pacific Northwest. We have many crews, many of our tribal uh, bureau crews down in the Southwest helping on the Hermit's Peak Fire, as an example, the tw- tunnel fire that was uh, here in Flagstaff. Uh, and we will look for those resources and shared resources to return when the Pacific Northwest starts to pick up its tempo and intensity of fire season once again that uh, July August time frame. So the southwest is is raging right now. Can you give us an update on these fires in New Mexico and into Arizona as well? Sure, sure. So um, nationally we we have preparedness levels ranked one to five, one being the lowest intensity, five being we have multiple geographic regions that are experiencing high intensity, large fires. So nationally, we're at preparedness level two, which means we're starting to, uh, it's starting to become much more inclusive in terms of sharing those, once again, regional resources. Well, the Southwest area is at a preparedness level four, which is nearly the highest. Once again, preparedness level five being full engagement, multiple areas within that geographic area are in extreme fire, either potential or experiencing high fires. So as I mentioned, Hermit's Peak this morning, you know, that's approaching 250,000 acres, nearly a quarter million acres, uh, nearly 400 homes lost. The cost to battle that fire as of today is 60 million. And that's another thing I think we and the audience uh, in understanding, not only the toll from an environmental standpoint, but really the financial cost that uh, many of these fires uh, take on our tribal communities, uh, our counties, our state governments. Uh, yeah, it is, uh, it's extreme and uh, it does cause uh, a number of issues in relation with that. $60 million, that's a big number, and I imagine that's only going to grow as fire season progresses. Bodhi, so much concern nowadays with climate change, increasing temperatures, droughts, changes in wind patterns. Is that driving a lot of these fires that we're experiencing right now? I think you're, you're absolutely correct. A lot of this changing climate that we're in is, is, uh, is having an effect. I think also we go back to 100 years of fire suppression. When you go 100 years ago, all fires were bad fires. We immediately put those out, the 10 o'clock Forest Service policy as an example. It's taken us decades to work our way out of that, or at least try to work our way out of that with our hazard fuel reduction uh, projects within our tribal communities, within our tribal rangelands, tribal forests we do receive federal funding to address those hazardous fuel uh, components, but we are way behind the power curve. And now we insert a changing climate, a drying climate, uh, less precipitation. It exacerbates that challenge that we as fire practitioners, fire managers, we as a tribal public 
have to deal with nearly every year across the landscape. Uh, so it definitely has, Sean, uh, affected and increased uh, the volatility of our fuels around the, whether it be talking rangeland, grass, uh, or timber, it has increased that volatility. And it's, we're still behind the power curve when it comes to addressing how we treat those fuels across the landscape. So what you're saying in some ways kind of defies what some people might think is as a common sense approach in that in some instances, it's better just to let fires burn themselves out and reduce some of these fuels as opposed to putting them out right away and letting these fuels accumulate, which is what has been the, was the policy for many, many years. Is that right, Bodie? Yeah, that's a, you know, that has been a point of contention for decades. If we have that opportunity to, going back to what you're referencing as the let burn policy of the 80s, and many are aware of Yellowstone fires, that policy is really what led to such a catastrophic large fire. I was on that fire, 1988, uh, the Yellowstone fires. Many of your listeners probably remember that. So that caused the government to reevaluate that concept. How can we put, still maintaining that concept but changing the paradigm a little bit in terms of how we when we allow fire to burn under certain conditions uh it's it's not um <laughs> it's definitely not we are not to an area where we're 100 <clears throat> percent uh, able to control and maintain prescribed fire you know unfortunately maybe some of you uh some of your listeners are aware of the hermit's peak fire you know, nearly 250,000 acres lost over 400 homes was a prescribed fire. Um, so it's it, it fire is very magical, and it and it continues to be, and it causes um, it is difficult. But it is we we do the best we can with the tools that we have, but uh, it does pose a number of challenges. And as you mentioned, even a prescribed fire can get out of control very quickly. Like you mentioned, let's Correct. bring another voice into the conversation now. Joining us from Boise, Idaho is Darren Williams. He's the Northwest Regional Fire Management Officer for the Department of Interior, Bureau of Indian Affairs. He's Hopi. Darren, welcome to Native America Calling. Hey, I appreciate the honor and the invitation today. You bet, Darren. And we're talking about these fires down in the Southwest right now. Are you folks sending crews towards fires in New Mexico? Actually, we are here within the Northwest, you know, with the Northwest being relatively quiet uh, with wildland fire. Uh, we have sent uh, resources, and uh, Bodie was mentioning the incident management team that came to the tunnel fire. That was a uh, type one incident management team uh, from the Pacific Northwest. And uh, so we sent them down, and, you know, again, also our tribes, uh, Yakima. You know, as well as uh, the Salish Kootenai tribe, you know, amongst others, have also sent uh, fire resources down, both engines and uh, overhead, uh, to assist the southwest. And then, you know, when we get hot and heavy here, you know, July, August, you know, we really hope to have some of those folks come up and assist us, you know, as hopefully by that time the southwest has uh, cooled down in regards to wildland fire suppression. About how many crews are you sending to New Mexico? Uh, it's various. Um, currently, right now, in the northwest, uh, due to the timing of our fire season, 
uh, many of our crews are just coming on board and going through the required training in order to uh, get them qualified for uh, wildland firefighting. So uh, recurrency RT-130 is what it's called. Uh, basically, it's a wildland fire refresher. It's a one-day course, uh, as well as you know the various work capacity tests, uh, which is our physical uh, standard uh, for wildland firefighting. Uh, many of those crews are going on uh, getting that uh, updated now, uh, so that we can be available uh, to go out and help you know our our tribal affiliates as well as you know our interagency partners and cooperators. Uh, with wild and fire suppression. We were talking about forest fires on our show today and lots happening in the Southwest in parts of New Mexico, Arizona. Some big fires are raging and we're speaking with fire suppression specialists. Uh, they're located in different parts of the country and many of them have their eyes on New Mexico. They're paying attention. They're focusing efforts. They're sending crews towards those fires to assist Looks like it's shaping up to be a busy year for firefighters in Native America and other parts of the United States. And we're getting the lowdown on that. We're getting updates, we're getting information, and we're learning more about what goes in to the profession and the science of fighting fires and keeping our wildlife safe, our communities safe, our tribal land safe. If you've got a question, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. If you have a loved one on the fire line right now and you want to give them a shout out, you can do that too. We'll be back right after this short break. The National Hockey League Stanley Cup playoffs are in full swing, and the NCAA Hockey Championship is recently behind us. Whether or not you have hockey fever, you'll want to hear our show about standout Native players and what it takes to keep up on the ice. That's on the next Native America Calling. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about fighting wildfires today. We have Native fire experts to give us a view of what's on the horizon. Are you a firefighter or a former firefighter? In many Native communities, it's a rite of passage. Tell us about your time on the fire line. Number to call, 1-800-996-2848. It's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking right now with Darren Williams, BIA Northwest Regional Fire Management Officer. Darren, you were talking a little bit about the requirements for being a seasonal firefighter, also some of the training that goes into it. Are you facing a shortage of firefighters right now? Are there enough uh, men and women that are ready to to go out there on the fire line this year, this season? You know, we kind of a, a tricky question there. Um, we love of firefighters and we're always looking and recruiting 
you know, anyone, you know, who would be interested. It's, you know, obviously turned into, you know, my, you know, lifelong vocation, which I just love. And so, you know, to those, you know, listeners there, we would just, you know, love to have you come and apply to the various, you know, tribes or agencies, you know, wherever you're from. But, you know, to answer your question, you know, there has been a little bit of a shortage, you know, back, you know, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, we had a large, uh, administratively determined uh, while in fire, firefighting force. And those folks came on and, and helped when there was, you know, smoke in the air. Um, you know, since then, you know, things have dwindled based upon, you know, just the outside influences of life and, you know, the realities of, you know, various uh, positions for, for young people. Uh, but again, we would love to, you know, get those young people, you know, back to, to help us. And, you know, the training requirements that I mentioned earlier are a little bit more stringent. Um, however, you know, in my opinion, you know, as a fire you know, administrator, it's for safety reasons. Um, you know, like I said, we went through the work capacity test. Um, you know, there's new requirements to go through a physical and, and do those types of things. And again, now just making sure that we're physically fit in order to go out and fight those wildland fire fires and, um, you know, the time effort, you know, is a little bit more onus, you know, on the individual. But, you know, again, we're just willing and, and love to get all the young people that we can uh, to come and help us out. In my day, there was a step test that we were required to take in order to test our, our cardio. Is that still part of the process? Uh, unfortunately, no. Uh, that has gone away. And we're, like I mentioned earlier, the work capacity test is what we typically do. So, uh, when we see the news and we see the wildland firefighters out on the line, uh, typically what they have done uh, is called the arduous work capacity test. And that test requires uh, them to uh, walk or hike uh, with 45 pounds on them and walk three miles in under 45 minutes. And so if you meet that criteria, uh, you pass the work capacity test and you are physically you know, fit um, to go out and be on the fire line. Is it too late now to sign up for this fire season? Absolutely not. Not at all. Um, again, like I said, here in the Northwest, you know, we're just starting to get folks, you know, trained and hired uh, to fight wildland fire. So uh, absolutely not. Um, if you are interested, uh, go find, you know, a mentor or somebody who you know fights fire. Uh, back in my day, you know, 1991, uh, I actually coached basketball at the year after I graduated high school and went to my mentor, uh, Greg Birch. And at the time, he was a head coach, but I knew he fought fire. And uh, so I'm watching a basketball game and, you know, thinking about this and actually home from school, you know, many times, you know, we get hired, you know, the new folks, you know, for me, it was a, a seasonal job to do in the summers while I went to college. Um, I knew Greg fought fire, so I went and bugged him, and then he said, well, hey, go bug uh, the assistant fire management officer who does all the hiring. And so I did that, and I'm not sure if it was um, just for me bugging him too much, but, you know, he gave me a job. And, you know, 1991, a long time ago, um, you know, probably many of the listeners may not you know, remember that date or even been born, but um, it had been a huge uh, blessing in my life, uh, wildland fire. And, and I love it. And, 
you know, it's uh, been a great benefit uh, to me and my family. Well, Darren, thank you so much for sharing your experiences as a longtime firefighter, not only out there on the fire line, but also uh, in management. Let's bring another voice into our conversation now. Joining us from the Flathead Indian Reservation in Montana is Ron Sweeney. He's the fire management officer for the Salish Kootenai Tribe. He's an enrolled member of the Salish Kootenai Tribe. Ron, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Sean. Thanks for having me on. You bet, Ron. And talking about what it takes to be a firefighter, what some of the tasks are out there on the fire line. And I'm curious to know, how dangerous is it really, Ron? I mean, people do die on fires, but how often does that really occur? Yeah, so there's a lot of risk to firefighting in just about every aspect of the job. And, uh, you know, as Bodie and Darren could attest that uh, managing that risk is our primary uh, duty as as managers of a program. You know, um, we don't lose a lot of people every year, but we do lose people. And we're always diligent in trying to find out ways to to make our firefighters safe, knowing that life safety is our number one priority. And so supporting the firefighter, I think there's been a lot of changes I started in 84 and looking at how we approach fire now and, and our management strategies is, is, is more, is a safer environment, I think, for the firefighter and provides for more uh, opportunity for success. Um, well, in the old days, we used to do a lot of night operations and, uh, you know, some rocks and trees would fall at night and, and hurt, injure people. And uh, we've kind of changed that approach and uh and taking a a step back trying to see how we can support the firefighter better and provide for safety um south canyon in 1994 that fire set the stage for a lot of changes um you know the irpg and some other things came out of that the pack test or the work capacity test that uh, darren's talking about you know we lost a number of people on storm king mountain in that fire and highly qualified hot shots, engine folks, uh, smoke jumpers. And it really made us step back and look at not only our training, the qualification system, but our minds as, as, as human beings and understanding, um, you know, that we have some things that we need to get across and get over in terms of we had people going down a road wondering why they were going down that road, but just doing it because their supervisor said they should. It just seemed like now a lot of our young people have the ability to challenge and ask why. And risk management has provided that opportunity for us to look at assignments and address risk. But here's the deal. There will be risk in every action that we take. Mm -hmm. It is part of our game. And is the fire itself the biggest risk, or are there other factors? Oh, there's a number of factors. Um, the fire itself, no, I'd say environmental factors being rocks, trees falling. Um, we had uh, a young man get medevaced off the fire here, uh, the Florence fire. It was our helicopter, and he passed on our helicopter, um, got hit by a tree, uh, his first fire. We've got people that have been hit by rocks and, and uh, things of that nature. Trips 
stumbles, falls are a big piece. So obviously night operations and footing uh, have to be looked at and addressed. Aviation assets, we have a lot of moving parts when we have a large fire. So you have helicopters and airplanes coming in and servicing and helping support. And uh, that also adds a level of risk and a level of exposure to firefighters and to the pilots. And so mm-hmm. in driving, just driving long, long days, driving uh, after shift, driving to the fire. I mean, there's just a lot of risk that these folks, our firefighters, uh, face in every aspect of the job. Listeners, if you've got a question or a comment for one of our guests today, or you want to pay tribute to a firefighter, 1-800-996-2848. That's the number to call. Bodie, I'd like to bring you back into the conversation. BIA has an honor guard that pays tribute to fallen firefighters. Can you talk about that? Uh, well, let, let me back that up just a little bit, and I'll, I'll, I'll shift this to Darren. But this is a proposal that uh, uh, we're looking at uh, providing to national leadership, and we'd love to have Indian countries engagement, discussion, uh, but Sean, if we could, because Darren is really the brainchild behind this, I'd love to have him take the floor if we could. Absolutely. Darren, please step in. Yeah, you bet. And I appreciate this question because this is huge. And this is really to establish the Bureau of Indian Affairs identity uh, in honoring the families and you know, the loved ones, co-workers, you know, of the fallen firefighters. Like Ron said, you know, there's risk in everything, and there's so many multiple ways, um, you know, we take that risk when we engage in wild and fire. Um, originally, uh, when Ron actually mentioned South Canyon, uh, the director of the Bureau of Land Management, you know, went to those funerals, and he um, wanted a way to express, you know, the the Bureau's appreciation for the lives, you know, those fallen. And so he established the BLM Honor Guard, and that was established in 2000. In 2000, I was actually working for the BLM and was selected uh, to be part of that and develop that program as well as, you know, be the national lead, you know, during my, my last few years there with the BLM came to the BIA in 2011 and noticed that we did not have an honor guard. And so, you know, that was always in the back of my mind. But here recently, you know, we've been able to make that national proposal uh, to stand up an honor guard and to have the BIA, you know, along with Forest Service. Forest Service has about 50-plus honor guard members. Bureau of Land Management, you know, has honor guard for their wildland firefighters, Fish and Wildlife Service, Park Service, uh, as well as the Office of Justice Services for law enforcement with the BIA. And so, again, that push is, you know, at the national level, and we're starting to get traction, you know, with that. But that would be just a huge honor, um, you know, for those members of the BLM, BIA Honor Guard uh, to honor and uh, respect the families and, you know, the tribal, you know, the tribes um, whenever there is a firefighter. Um, you know, that passes, you know, hands reach out from all of our interagency partners. Um, one in particular that I will mention now when I was with the BLM Honor Guard uh, is a gentleman by the name of Randall Benito. Uh, he was from the Southwest. Um, you know, we went down after his death and, you know, on the fire line and 
um, I was with the BLM Honor Guard at the time and, you know, provide services, you know, to his family. Um, each year, they have the Wildland Firefighter Memorial back in Emmitsburg, Maryland. Uh, I was able to go back and, you know, sit and accompany his family uh, at that memorial and uh, lifelong friends with them even today. So, again, those relationships are huge. And, you know, this is one of the main points, you know, is to establish, you know, those relationships and, you know, and again, show our identity, you know, with the Bureau of Indian Affairs and, you know, what we can do and, and help to, again, recognize and honor um, the fallen and what their efforts have been. Well, it's great to hear yeah. about this proposal and, and wishing you folks well uh, as you move this along. And Ron, we're talking about a lot of the dangers in firefighting. I know it's a lot of work. It's not glamorous. I've been there myself. There are those times when you have to swing an ax from pretty much sunup to sundown, sleeping on the fire line with your boots on. But Ron, it's also fun at times, right? Oh, it's, it's a, it's a joy. Yeah. I love firefighting, uh, that crew life that you're alluding to sleeping on the line with the boots on, you know, you build lifelong relationships. These people are family members for life and galvanized in fire. And yeah, I, I wouldn't change it for anything. I've been in it my entire adult life. In fact, today we're saying bye to someone that's moving on to another profession and, uh, it's a lot of, you know, I'm going to miss him. And that's just how it is when you have this type of working relationship. You really spend a lot of time together. A lot of it's fun. Um, not every day do we lose or win, but uh, every day we do strap the boots back on and go back to battle. And, yeah, it's, it's a great relationship. Um, this job is, is more than a job to me. It's, it's part of my family. Galvanized by fire. I like that, Ron. What kind of resources would you like to see devoted to attracting more firefighters? Well, <clears throat> so on the, you know, any funding, I think we have to develop some type uh, building crews. Uh, developmental crews is one thing that I would like to see, uh, type 2IA crews, so that we could help the suppression effort. Um, I think that would be great. I think crew life is something that everyone should have as they go through um, their career. It, it teaches a lot of things in terms of teamwork and bonding and, and, and understanding how we're going to work together to make things better. And I think it's a piece of our management, future management, that I would like to see that instilled in all of them. So I think developmental crews, type 2IA crews would be great. Uh, where you bring people in and uh, and uh, form a crew and uh, let them spend uh, a fire season together out on the road. Um, I think that is where I see the most concern. I think the preparedness budget, it would be great if we got more funding and preparedness. Right now, the management uh, decision from the national office is to pour money into fuels, which makes a lot of sense because of the amount of risk is, as, as we've heard from uh, Bodie, you know, we keep fire out of the ecosystem for a hundred years. It's going to take a while to get it back on balance. And uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, 
I think putting money into some preparedness wouldn't hurt. I think building some folks into the management scheme at agencies that could go down to other regions and stand up as mid-level or upper management on those teams, incident management teams, is another piece that I'd like to see. Um, right now, nationally, as states become, as it, fire season moves north, what we'll see is there's a lot of uh, teams that start to get burned out or we get more fire activity than we have incident management teams. And in that situation, you've got agencies handling type one and type two incidents with their own staff. And uh, so I think there's just a lot of stuff that's going on uh, <clears throat> within the workforce uh, dynamic. Young mm -hmm. people don't want to spend their summers on top of the Smoky Mountain. Okay. So much interesting information on our show today, talking about fire management suppression. Give us a call with any questions. 1-800-996-2848. We're back right after break. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strongheart's Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by Stronghearts Native Helpline. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking with Native wildfire experts today, and there's still time to join the conversation. Call in to give a shout out to your local firefighters. 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. Phone lines are open. We've got a caller on the line right now, Eric, listening on KIWE on the Nez Perce Reservation in Idaho. Eric, thanks for calling in. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Mayway. Uh, I just heard Bodie on the, the radio, and I thought it was a you know a really great time and opportunity to kind of share some insight. I've been in wildland fire for 25 years, and then I retired from that, and uh, my little brother Lewis Holt, he's kind of running a lot of stuff around here now. But and I, I just wanted to kind of grasp a couple of things about the camaraderie and the the family. You know, it runs generational, and sometimes in Native American country, where you know it's kind of we're born into it, if you will. And you know, like my mother Sandy Holt, she she was in it. My dad was into it. You know, and then all of us, you know, brothers, as we grew into it, it was kind of like everybody's first way to make money on the reservation, if you will, the wildland fires. And it's not quite what it used to be where, you know, you had 10 crews coming from one reservation at once where, you know, those are the good old days where they would, you know, a lot of uh, type 2 EFF crews and, you know, and it's long since been gone. You know, that's a funding issue and all kinds of other things. And I don't want to get into that part of it today, but I just wanted to share a little bit about the fallen wildland firefighter. And, you know, they talked about Storm King in South Canyon and, 1996 and well fast forward to 2006 and i was going on to a single resource assignment up to alaska well prior to that departure our fire crew was also going on a fire dispatch and so but you know to honor those that have fallen we knew it was the 10-year anniversary of the you know of that fire that took that was tragic where tragedy had hit and so my little brother lewis and some of the folks that Sing travel songs. We gathered in a big circle and 
we sang an honor song and you know in honor of the fallen firefighter <laughs> well after that you know we all gave hugs and shook our hands and you know there's no words for good in, for goodbye in our native you know Nespers language and so we said you know see you on the next one i'll see you guys later and so anyways fast forward to alaska i get up there about three days into my dispatch and we i go out to a big spike camp up by the fort venatai indian village and uh, I'm re- replacing this guy as a task force leader, and so I go up there, and everybody goes around and introduces themselves, and then so I, it was my turn, and I spoke about uh, the Nespers honoring this day. You know, three it was back three days ago. I said, but we took our time to honor those, and I wanted to share that. You know, we respect all everybody's family when it comes to fire, and so we said uh, I told him the honor song, and little did I know, sitting left to me about five people away was Tom Shepard who was the superintendent of the uh, hot shots. And so and he got all choked up and emotional as I spoke about the fallen firefighter and the way we honored him. <laughs> and I did not know it was him, and he walked away from our discussion. And everybody kind of went around and stood and introduced themselves. And about two hours later, he came and approached me and said that he was truly blessed and honored for me to share that, <laughs> to give my sentiments and to, to share that we honored them. You know, and he didn't know me. He had no idea who I was and, and what we were about. But, you know, I told him how to think and how we honor people. And whether they're Native or not, you know, they're a part of our family. And so that was a really good moment for me in my fire career where I got to share, you know, with him personally. And it affected him. And it still did 10 years later. And so I'm glad that you guys are doing this. And I've lost brothers. Past year that are that were firefighters and uh, we just had to, my brother he just passed away two years two months ago and he was a firefighter and we had to we rung the bell for the final service final service call and uh, so I say that with uh, uh, you know a hurt heart today but one that I'm happy you guys are doing that so I don't want to take too much time but I wanted to say that much and I respect all firefighters cut the eye off for letting me share. Eric, I'm sorry for your family's loss. Condolences. That was a absolutely beautiful and inspiring story that you just shared. Thank you, Eric, for calling in. I'd like to bring our next guest into the show now. Joining us from Chandler, Arizona, is Robert Jackson. He's the fire captain for the Gila River Fire Department. He's Pima. Captain Jackson, welcome to the show. Good morning, Sean. It's great to have you on the show, Captain Jackson. And can you explain to our listeners who might not be familiar with the occupations? Because, you know, I think a lot of times when we think of firefighting, we, we think of urban firefighters and big red trucks in large cities and towns. And how is a seasonal forest firefighter different than, than an urban firefighter like what we might see in a city? Uh, well, with with our community here, we are a an urban city uh, type of response um, compared to you know more of a seasonal wildland. You know, in our community here, we do have the our our own BIA agency that does the wildland portion uh, here within the community. Uh, but we are uh, the Gila River Fire Department established as a twenty uh, four. 24/7 type of deal. We work 24 shifts. We work off of those engines. Uh, we are EMTs to paramedics. Uh, we respond to uh, hazardous materials calls. Um, 
rescue task force calls, with water rescue type of stuff. So, you know, there's a lot more uh, training and certifications uh, when it comes to uh, the urban interface portion of it, as opposed to, you know, the wildland is more uh, in that area and they have that area and their expertise, uh, their subject matter experts in that, in that position. As far as uh, here within our own community, we have our own specialized team within our department that is, is uh, more qualified uh, for the hand, uh, the wildland stuff. And, you know, they do get sent out with, uh, you know, we have type three uh, vehicle and we also have type six vehicles that uh, are able to get sent out when, you know, those calls do happen and the resources uh, orders come in for that to go ahead and uh, get called out. So there at Gila River, your department works in both areas then. You handle suppression of wildfires, but you also handle these urban situations like structure fires. Uh, does that present unique challenges having to do both types of fire suppression? Oh, yeah, that's a big a big difference because, you know, there's, there's different fire behavior when we're talking about structural and there's different fire behaviors when we're talking about uh, wildland. You know, we're talking about acres and and, uh, and uh, more exposures opposed to, you know, we have a contained box that could be, uh, you know, have fire going through it. What's the behavior like there as opposed to what's the behavior like on a, you know, thousand acre fire and, and what we have to do. So we have to, you know, we are certified in uh, fire one and two, as I stated before, EM, uh, EMTs. And we also across the board are uh, basic wildland firefighters as well, as well as uh, hazardous materials. So just to have that separate training, but only just a small bit compared to what you would need to have uh, when it comes to specializing in, in wildland and being that, that seasonal firefighter, because uh, we could easily have a brush, a small brush fire that turns into a house fire or a house fire that turns into a, uh, into a brush fire. So you can easily see how those strategies have to change with the resources that we do have. Robert, how did you get involved in, in this type of career, fire management? Um, I had no idea what I wanted to do after high school. Um, I started working for my community and uh, the fire department and a, another department within our community, employment and training, um, got together, say, hey, we're building more stations. We have casinos and uh, residential areas going up. We have industrial stuff going up. We need uh, to bring more personnel on so that we can staff these engines and these units. So they had previously uh, created, I believe in 97, an all-Native American apprentice academy. So what they created was they, they wanted to bring in not only community members from this community, but uh, Native Americans from, from outside and get them certified in everything that you would need to be uh, fully working on the engines here. So your firefighter one and two certification, your EMT certification, your wildland certification, hazardous material certification, uh, all of those would have been uh, given, well, you would have to, you know, obviously go through the testing, the credentials, and the schooling, but it was all provided by the community. And so I saw the opportunity to do that, and like I said, I had no idea what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it, 
but uh, that opportunity came up and, you know, 15 years later, I've, I'm still in the business and, you know, the best accident <laughs> that, that has happened to me. <laughs> and, you know, I just like to, um, in my position now, I like to share that opportunity and those opportunities that are out there to, you know, our, our, uh, our young ones coming in and even older, you know, they, that are looking for a career, looking for that camaraderie that they were talking about before, looking for that family lifestyle and, and, you know, the training and everything else is just, is just fun on top of that. Well, congratulations on your success. How large is your department? Uh, we have about, uh, 70 online personnel running five engines. Um, and we also have a separate EMS division in our community that also uh, houses um, Gila River Healthcare. They handle the ambulances out here. So there's a, probably about a dozen ambulances out here covering about 550,000 square miles within our seven districts here in the Gila River Indian community. Are you sending any personnel to these fires we've been talking about in parts of New Mexico and Arizona? Um, I'm not sure. I know uh, through our resources, like I said, we have a specialized team within our department. Um, I'm actually not a part of that team, but we do have a separate uh, wildland brush team that um, goes through that process to get um, qualified to get called out to those types of calls and they have been out on many calls. I mean, this has been going on for, for years. So they have been out on many calls from the whole southwest region to the west to the north region as well. What's the fire situation there at Gila River right now? Do you have any smokers? Uh, so that, that, that would be our, our BIA agency uh, uh, taking care of all of that stuff. We're kind of more secondary when it comes to uh, any type of uh, brush fires or anything like that uh, to help back them up, you know, what, whatever they need as far as resources and what apparatus we can help them out with. Well, it's really interesting. Thank you so much for providing that additional insight, Robert. And I want to ask Bodie a question, uh, loop back around. And uh, Bodie, years ago, I read that there was a federal law that made it possible for people, ordinary citizens, to be conscripted as firefighters immediately. I'm talking like being pulled out of their cars, handed a Pulaski if the wildfire was serious enough, and sent to work. Is that law still on the books, do you know? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm afraid it's not. I know exactly what you're talking about. And some parts of uh, the country, volunteer fire departments have been given the authority on protection of personal property. Uh, somewhat related but uh probably not what you were looking at but no that law is no longer on the books i know many on the uh your listening audience probably remember those days in the 60s 70s where you could be taken out of the uh, the local bar the local grocery out of your car as you mentioned and put out on the fire ground uh not so much anymore back to darren's points of how regimented and you were part of that too sean with the step test as an example uh very regimented now uh how we and who we bring on well listeners uh relax easy no no need to carry a comfortable pair of boots or a change of clothes in your trunk this summer <laughs> just saying Robert, uh, Bodie just mentioned volunteers. Is that something there at Gila River that you uh, you use as well? Do you have any volunteer firefighters that support your department? 
Uh, not no more. Our our agency was initially a volunteer department. You know, like I said, we have the seven districts within our community. So, you know, when there was a column of smoke back in the, the early, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, you know, somebody went and found it and somebody went to the firehouse and grabbed the engine and, and made their way there. So with the expansion of uh, the casinos and gaming and residential and businesses out here, that's when they decided to go to uh, – full-time, full-time fire department and police department, along with our, our EMS partners as well. So right now, uh, no volunteers, but, you know, we're, we're always recruiting, you know, to get more personnel uh, onto these apparatuses with, you know, residential and industrial businesses growing out here. And about what percentage of your calls are for fires as opposed to accidents or other types of emergencies? I would say a very small percentage. We're we're talking maybe five percent are actual fire calls, and that includes you know small structure fires to car fires to um, you know small brush fires or whatever it may be. Uh, the majority of what we're doing out here is EMS calls, um, you know headaches, um, you know bloody noses, broken arms. Uh, to the, to the majority of you know heart attacks and stuff like that. So the majority, ninety percent of what we're doing is is medical and um, other stuff. You know, uh, vehicle traffic accidents, stuff like that. And Robert, I, I I've got to ask. One of our producers wants to know: any of your crew going to be in any kind of these uh, firefighter calendars coming up anytime soon? <laughs> we're still working on that. <laughs> okay. Well, we've reached the end of the hour, and I would like to say thank you to our guests, Bodie Shaw, Darren Williams, Robert Jackson, and Ron Sweeney, for their expert commentary and insights on fire season 2022. Join us tomorrow for a discussion about ice hockey. It's one of my favorite sports, and Native players have a proud and long history of making their mark. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. Support by Amerind, the 100% tribally owned insurance partner working with tribal governments and enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian country. Info at Amerind.com. Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing millions of dollars of scholarships to Native students every year. Applications are accepted through May 31st at collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Cachet. First baby, don't know where to start? CMS programs cover prenatal services. Enroll today. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Elahqua. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico, by Quantic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.